This is Questions of Courage, a podcast from the youth section at the Goetheanum, hosted by Nathaniel Williams. Welcome to Questions of Courage. I'd like to talk about a book by Hari Kunzru today called Red Pill. It was written a few years ago. It's a novel, and I'd like to talk about it from a particular angle. When I was 18, 19, I, I read Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. And what really came out of that experience for me was a picture of what it means to be a human being. And in a way, you could take that book and you could put over it a sign that said, Behold the Human Being. And when you read the book, you would get a picture of a being that carries with themselves kind of certain chaotic tendencies These tendencies can lead to suffering for themselves and for everyone who's around them. But they also carry within them certain forces of conscience. And these forces of conscience can help them align and orient towards the good and ultimately find some kind of redemption. It's a powerful picture of the human being. And I'd like to talk about Hari Kunzru's book in a similar way way, trying to look at it as a picture of the human being today. I don't want to compare it with the Brothers Karamazov, um, but just to look at it in this style of viewing it. And it's called Red Pill, and if you're listening, probably immediately you're thinking about The Matrix and the scene in the movie where the main characters offered a red pill and a blue pill. The red pill, taking it is a decision to stay awake to a very painful truth, an uncomfortable truth, but to live with it and to live with an awareness of it. The blue pill is a decision to be able to forget it and to live in a fantasy, a fantasy that actually is just obscuring a nightmare of a reality. Of course, this picture from the movie has gone on to have a life of its own in politics and culture and in one way that it's appeared is in discussions about politics and society and also the relationship between men and women um, and pictures of the rightful place of violence and power in human life. Suggestions that there are uncomfortable truths that ultimately we have to come to terms with, even if they undermine certain ideas about human dignity, about the human individuality and the human self, even if they undermine these, ultimately they're true. And taking the red pill in relationship to them is a kind of maturation or initiation process. This is one of the ways that this image has been used in the last 20 years. And when you read reviews of Harry Kunzru's book, this aspect is brought up, rightfully so, quite a bit. And the book itself is framed parallel to an election that unmistakably is the election of Donald Trump. The, the main character is kind of watching this election from a distance throughout the whole story. But um, one thing that you you can easily notice when you read the reviews, and which is perpetually uh, a um, temptation, is to adopt a kind of arrogance in relationship to the questions 
that are being posed and that young people all around the world are having to come to terms with. Young people are living with the question of whether or not the idea of the noble individual and individuality of the human spirit can stand on its own feet across from the pictures of power and violence that are dominating in many ways the societies that they live with on a day-to-day -day basis until the idea of human rights as a really justifiable idea about things becomes questionable. And this is an arrogance that it can be best to suspend while reading this book. And Harry Kunzru himself, I think, suspended it while he wrote it and lived into this great dynamic of the storyline that he created. Basically, there's a writer, and he's coming from the society where this tumultuous election is underway. He has a wife who's a human rights lawyer and a daughter. And in his life, he's in his middle age, He's coming from the liberal arts background, postmodern orientation, and he's not exactly aligned with his goals in life. He's a little bit lost. He isn't really feeling that he's found his place in life. He's, being, he's carrying around these burdens of questions with him. And his wife is very supportive that he goes on a writing fellowship that he's won to Germany and hoping that he can figure some things out and come back and be more helpful and also um, just clear about what he's doing and able to take up his daily responsibilities, so to say. However, he goes to Germany on this fellowship and he's very unproductive. He spends a lot of time in his room streaming and binging TV shows. He's watching particularly this series of shows called Blue Lives and it's a kind of show that you have countless examples of, of police and detectives. They're trying to find criminals and to serve justice, so to say. But eventually he notices that there's something very unusual in this TV series, which is that the detectives and the police are not so different from so-called criminals, and brazenly so. There's no regard for due process. There's torture. There's no presumption of innocence and there's unbelievable corruption. At one point in the show, the main lead detective looks up, stares directly into the camera and says, the whole earth, perpetually steeped in blood, is nothing but a vast altar on which all living things must be sacrificed without end, without restraint, without pause, until the consummation of things. There's this picture of this world and the human experience as being in a world of violence where the rule of violence and the law of violence is the ultimate reality of things. He goes on to um, be obsessed with this TV series, be unproductive in his fellowship. Eventually he meets the writer and his relationship with the writer is such that all of his insecurities about human rights, about the dignity of the individual are placed in question. And 
he keeps following him. He's following him around. And eventually he ends up on this island where he thinks that this author has spent time. And he's somehow trying to find an ultimate confrontation that can also be a realization of understanding and truth and a resolution of his own insecurities. And he goes there. He doesn't find him but he writes down this whole long written piece of his insights. And he ends up having this accident and seriously injuring himself. And the authorities take him in a paranoid psychotic state to a hospital where he gradually is discovered and brought back to his family. His wife and his daughter, totally concerned about him on all levels. And he ends in an extremely vulnerable place. No one trusts him. He's unstable. And yet he says something to the effect of, in reciprocity, we're the strongest. People who present this perspective of a violent world are deluded. And the very last line of the book, though, is not a tone of confidence. The last line is, Outside, the wide world is howling and scratching at the window. Tomorrow morning, we will have no choice but to let it in. And this is a feeling that a lot of people no doubt live with, and many people have already let unbelievable violence in. They've had no choice. But in this storyline, In this arc of the story, there are some remarkable characteristics that I just briefly like to speak about and also characterize with some quotes. One of them is how the main character experiences himself. At one point in the story, he's reflecting on his childhood and as a child, I experienced myself as a ghostly event in the world came first, this self, before everything, before thought or action. It was the place where I was, my present moment. As I got older, one thing that never changed was the conviction that exploring its luxurious particularity would keep me busy for the rest of my life, that I could never finish thinking myself through, and at a minimum, it would be an honorable project useful, or at least absorbing, and however else my circumstances changed, it could never be taken away from me. And then he writes, in Berlin, that came to an end. Now, what I think of when I think of myself, in quotes, is the atrocious waste of my years. This experience of the self his own self as a kind of unreliable field of self-absorption and illusions is causing him unbelievable anxiety through the whole book. This experience of the human self, which plays a central role in feeling like the human being possesses dignity, that we have duties across from one another, that we have responsibilities for one another, 
that you can speak about things like justice and love, and they're not just phrases or fantasies. This all is utterly unstable for him on this trip that he makes on this fellowship. At one point, he's He's at his wit's end and he calls his wife. She's very busy. She's taking care of their child now. He's off on a fellowship and he calls and he says, I need to ask you something. It'll sound strange, but humor me. Okay, she says. Why do you believe in human rights? That's what you want to talk about? Yes. Jesus, I thought you were finally going to be real with me. I thought you were going to tell me what's been up with you all these months, she says. And then a little later, he says again, human rights, why you believe humans have special rights? It's what I do. I practice human rights law. It's my job. Which you do because you really believe deep down in your heart that people have an inherent dignity because they're human? They go on and talk more, and then he says, we say all these things, that we have consciousness, that we feel things so deeply. If we still believed in the soul, maybe. Do you believe in the soul? I can't believe I've never asked you this. End quote. These are all examples of this utterly unreal feeling that the human being as a spirit, as a soul, as consciousness, how can you even get a hold of it? How can you have a real solid relationship with it? He's filled with anxiety and paranoia about this. At the end of this book, he's on this island, he's kind of in a state of mental hysteria and he's writing. And he's writing this dystopian vision that's arising up from him. He's kind of standing at this huge abyss and he feels evil coming out of this abyss. And he sees a vision of the future and he writes about it. I wrote about a paradox, how the earth is in flames, but we still find it cold and difficult to touch. How we are not at home how despite or perhaps because of our distance, our inability to experience ourselves as nature, we are in crisis. So here he has this experience of there's something in the human being that when it tries to unite with nature, loses itself. That there's this distance between something in human nature and the processes of nature. A little later, he writes, with metrication has come a creeping loss of aura, the end of the illusion of exceptionality, which is the remnant of the religious belief that we stand partly outside or above the world, that we are endowed with a special essence and deserve recognition or protection because of it. And a little later, my luxurious mental furnishings, my sensibility and intelligence and taste, all would turn to ashes. 
And the same thing would happen to everyone else on the earth. The destruction of culture was only the beginning. Meaning itself would be revealed as an artifact of a period that was slipping away into history. Afterwards, there would be only function. He has this dystopian vision. He writes it all down. As I've said, he ends up eventually back at home after a visit at a mental ward. When you look at this whole experience of this writer and you say, behold the human being, it's very different from the image that shows up when you read Brothers Karamazov. There's an emphasis on a kind of ephemeral, ungraspable experience of the human self. It can't be taken a hold of. And everything in consciousness has the feeling that it's an illusion, that it's unreal, that it's a specter. When we try to take the world into our awareness and somehow to unite with it, it becomes an illusion. On the other hand, when we see that our self ultimately unites with the world, it's because the world destroys us. And this clearly comes up in these pictures of unity in the world or with the world as destruction, that the ultimate unity with the world is the destruction of the human being. And there's this anxiety and this feeling of fear and paranoia that permeates the whole book. Behold the human being. Behold the human being. And yet in this picture, there is a feeling that there is something deeper, something that connects everyone together. And yet this feeling is characterized by uncertainty in this book. Behold the human being. A hundred years ago, this month, January 1924, Rudolf Steiner was opening the Goethe Anum, the School for Spiritual Science, which I think in English is easily translated as a kind of independent university for contemplative knowledge practices. And he gave a public course called Anthroposophy and Introduction After 21 Years. And the first lecture, which was given on the 19th of January, was called Anthroposophy as What Human Beings Long For Today. And I'd like to close this reflection on Harry Kunzru's Red Pill by just reading an excerpt from the end of that lecture, which I encourage you to look at. More specifically, it's really a remarkable lecture. From two directions, searching questions confront the human being today. One of these questions arises when the human being becomes aware that nature exists, but the human being can only approach her by letting her destroy him. The other question 
arises when the human being sees. The human soul exists, but nature can only approach this human soul by becoming illusion. These two truths live in the subconscious of human beings today. On the one hand, we have the unknown world of nature, the destroyer of human beings. On the other, the unreal image of the human soul, which nature cannot approach, although human beings can only complete their physical lives by cooperating with her. Human beings stand, so to speak, in double darkness, and the question arises, where is the other world to which I belong? This is the first lecture of an introduction to anthroposophy and an attempt to answer this question, not through simple philosophy or speculation, but through a kind of path of knowledge which includes contemplative practices and also orientations. And the resonance between that course, which was given a hundred years ago, and the image of the human being that we can read out of a book like Red Pill, out of our own experiences, and which we will read more and more in the coming years, I'm afraid, points to the importance of the work of the Goethe Anum and in the anthroposophical movement around the world. And it was those thoughts and pictures that I wanted to speak about today. Questions of Courage is a, a collaboration between the youth section and the Goethe Anum communications team. And Goethe Anum TV and the weekly periodical. The production costs are very low. Um, any contributions that come in related to these videos will support youth work, work with young people around content questions like the one that we've discussed today. Thank you very much.